Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Evan Feinberg, founder and CEO of Genesis Therapeutics, and as VJ and Evan discuss, a former student in VJ's lab. He is joined by Vijay Pandey of Bio and Health. Evan and Vijay talked about how Evan's work in the lab translated to the creation of Genesis, which is tackling the problem of drug discovery through AI. I think there's sort of two distinct ways to start companies, neither of which is better than another. They're just different. There are some individuals who are extremely excited about the concept of starting a company and They sit in a room with a whiteboard or with other people and come up with different ideas for businesses. There's others that develop a cool technology or some life event happens to them that sort of organically leads to that idea or that technology becoming a venture. And the latter is more true in this case. So just to frame it, in the latter part of our academic research together, we developed a new type of AI algorithm that seemed very well suited to the problem and problems of drug discovery. They also talked about how the Genesis team is building specifically to carry on work at the intersection of machine learning, biotech, and chemistry. One thing we did right from the very beginning was approach the problem very humbly, knowing that we need to take an interdisciplinary approach to this problem, that just computer jockeys were not gonna do it alone. We need to bring on the best of biotech as well. And so having a close collaboration between our internal chemists and our software engineers and ML researchers together uh, led us creating our internal platform, which we call Nucleus, um, which enables our chemists to have direct access to our latest and greatest ML models for predicting a variety of properties. And that's been really key for their productivity of supercharging their work, but also getting human feedback to the molecules and the predictions that our models are producing. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. Evan, thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. CJ, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love to kick off the episode with one of the things I always thought was really notable is that you were actually in a biotech company, even in high school. I don't know if you could uh, talk a little bit about the experience. That's not a typical uh, high school experience, I would think. My intellectual passions have always been physics and computer science since a very young age. And um, I've always felt um, uh, as equally excited by science as I am by helping other people um, from ever since ever I can really remember. It started, as you say, that in high school, 
by having the opportunity to intern at a local biotech company. And I happened to be there at the really auspicious moment where that company received its first FDA approval uh, the same summer that I was there. To be clear, correlation, not causation, uh, with my presence at the company. But there was a, a really um, key moment there that's indelibly imprinted in my mind ever since, where there was an all-hands meeting to celebrate this event, and the CEO of that company read aloud letters he had received from patients and their families thanking the company for not only saving their lives, but also transforming their quality of life as well. They talked about suddenly having the energy to play with their kids again. And that power to use scientific innovation to not only save lives, but change lives is something that I've sought ever since that moment junior or senior of high school to be able to use my, my intellectual passions to, to do for others as well. Well, yeah, and I can imagine then uh, experience in high school is a pretty formative one. Y you go to college and you, you study physics. Um, how do you sort of square the physics and uh, the saving lives part? You know, I remember the moment where I was convinced that majoring in, in uh, applied physics was the right move when I remember sitting in the library doing a problem set for my freshman physics class and thinking, I really should go and do my homework now. And then I realized, no, I was doing my homework. It was just really fun. I just forgot that it was work. Um, and it's something that it's uh, really fortunate to have in life, to find something that's just really exciting and doesn't feel like work. But I, I remember taking physics and organic chemistry at the same time, and, and chemistry, especially 3D interactions of molecules always felt very intuitive to me as well and just really fun. And the field of computational chemistry has always had immense promise, right? I mean, it's, it's why the first Nobel Prize for CompChem really only was in the past decade, but that was based on work initially happening in the late 70s initially. And the promise of being able to use physics-based models to model the way small molecule ligands, most, which most drugs are, how they interact with proteins, which most drugs bind to, was really exciting. But at that time, you know, I, I was in college from 09 to 13. It was really only at the cusp of the deep learning revolution. It hadn't quite gone off the ground yet. A large element of life is, is luck. And I happened to be in your lab, which is the right lab to be in, at the forefront of the deep learning revolution. The proximal reason I joined your lab uh, was that even back in high school, I was following Folding at Home. It, was, it seemed like the most exciting, promising way to apply computers to understand drug receptor interactions in a dynamic way. But something really special was happening at Stanford, I'd say in the mid-2010s. And the deep learning revolution was starting to really gather steam. But what we talked about in many meetings was that there was this gap where deep learning is not this monolith. It's really individual technologies that have some commonalities. But the algorithms developed for images were quite different than the algorithms that worked really well for natural language, but that neither was very well applicable to molecules. And that presented a real technological opportunity. And it's especially interesting at that point because 
you know, if I think about machine learning in drug design, then there was a lot of stuff in academia. I would say not a lot in pharma, right? I mean, people doing random forest and with smiles or with some sort of uh, uh, simple fingerprints or whatever. And my take on it is largely because it wasn't that useful. That you know, if you had a hundred actives, you could train a, a pretty good model. But if you had a hundred actives, maybe you'd have a pretty robust program by then. What's your take for like machine learning up to that point in real drug design? Why do you think it wasn't more actively used? For those that have been following the field for a long time, they know that the concept of machine learning and chemistry isn't necessarily new, but I think it's important to know the history. For the first wave of computational chemistry, like molecular dynamics, that's really machine learning with a very um, constrained functional form. What was really unique about neural networks was being a universal function approximator, whereas for molecular dynamics, it was a very fixed amber-like functional form or, or the variance. The other framework is more the one that you were just mentioning, which is the cheminformatics approach, where people trained random forests based on simple fingerprints to learn to distinguish actives from inactives for proteins. There were a couple of issues with that latter approach. As much as some of the AUCs for those models looked good, their domain of applicability was actually rather limited. It really underscores how important good benchmarking is in the field, rigorous benchmarking. And a lot of what people did was they would do either random splits of actives from inactives or limit the types of molecules in the training and test sets so they're kind of similar to each other. But the demands of machine learning and drug discovery are quite more rigorous than the demands in a lot of other domains of ML in that one has to extrapolate, one has to find new chemical matter, most importantly to find ones with better properties, better potency, selectivity, ADME, and also secondarily to develop patentable chemical matter if it's a protein that's already been drugged before. Whereas the paradigm of ML more, more typically is, is interpolative. So there was this gap where there was a lot of literature showing good performance, but in practice and pharma and biotech, not a lot of utilization, which reflected this gap in that the benchmarks were kind of measuring the wrong thing for a very long time. Hmm. Yeah. And so it's interesting because it speaks to a couple different things that you were involved with at Stanford. So the molecular dynamic side the deep learning side, and the benchmarking side. What changed to make it into something that made you think that this has a chance to work? One of my colleagues at Genesis has this great saying that um, you get what you screen for. And it's true in almost every field. It's not just science, where I think people really follow incentives. And if you're focused on improving some sort of metric or benchmark, you'll focus your efforts toward improving that benchmark. Mm -hmm. In our graduate work with you, we really were focused on a pretty high bar, which was um, trying to solve the most important problems in drug discovery, which also, unfortunately, are some of the hardest problems of drug discovery. <laughs> and in the landscape of discovering novel medicines, Oftentimes, one well understands the biology of a certain disease. In other words, it's well understood, like 
what protein is mutated or amplified or deleted or some other genetic alteration that leads to the pathology of that disease. But the struggle is the chemistry. The struggle is how to drug that protein, how to develop a small molecule that binds to that protein. For those listening without too much background in the area, it's very akin to um, a protein you can conceive of as a lock. A drug is like a key that binds to a lock and also changes its shape in an important way. And that really requires extrapolation. That's quite in contrast to the landscape of images and natural language, where humans have access to enormous amounts of training data. And when you think about that, it's kind of because humans are, have so much natural intuition and adeptness at vision and natural language. It's what we were evolved to do. So there's easy, it's easy to get 100 million images with labels or captions, at least, to train on. If you look at some of the latest image generative neural networks that are trained on 100 million images with captions easily. Now, humans can spend years, if not decades, training in medicinal chemistry, computational chemistry, physical chemistry, to get as good as possible at um, predicting the properties of small molecules or coming up with new small molecules to make, to engage proteins. But we're not nearly at the sort of 99% plus human accuracy at certain image recognition tasks, for example. We can get better over time, but we're not at that level. And in addition to that, we often need to drug new proteins. So if there's a protein that causes a disease, but there's no known small molecule that binds that protein, and we need to find a fundamentally new class of drug-like molecules that bind to that protein. So we really focused on that problem initially at Stanford and then much more at Genesis, which is how can we extrapolate from the limited data available to us in chemistry to be able to apply to new domains of chemical matter and new types of targets. What led you to the transition to think uh, that you wanted to start a company? I think there's sort of two distinct ways to start companies, neither of which is better than another. They're just different. There are some individuals who are extremely excited about the concept of starting a company, and they sit in a room with a whiteboard or with other people and come up with different ideas for businesses. There's others that develop a cool technology or some life event happens to them that sort of organically leads to that idea or that technology becoming a venture. And the latter is more true in this case. So just to frame it, in the latter part of our academic research together, we developed a new type of AI algorithm that seemed very well suited to the problem and problems of drug discovery. In particular, we felt that whereas the quote killer app neural network algorithm had already been developed to some extent for images and for natural language, which at that time in 2017, 2018 would be the convolutional neural net and first RNNs and then transformers for natural language that hadn't yet been developed for drug discovery, especially structure-driven drug, drug design, rational drug design. But we together developed spatial graph convolutional neural networks, uh, which we called PotentialNet, 
which now has been, been cited quite a bit, which promised to be at least a strong step in that direction of being the most natural primitive or the most natural neural network architecture for looking at protein-ligand interactions. And the performance of that algorithm that we developed on really rigorous benchmarks was really tough to look away from. And we felt the way to make maximal positive impact in the field of drug discovery and life sciences was to found a new venture with the mission of unifying the best of biotech with the best of artificial intelligence together to really change how drug discovery happens in a fundamental way. And that's that's really how the genesis of Genesis occurred. We talked about, you know, transformers coming out around 2017 and, you know, really transforming NLP. Uh, and then more recently, you know, we've seen all this stuff with images and with uh, things like GPT-4. Do you think the uh, excitement matches reality? I think the image space and the natural language space are so parallel to each other in so many ways. In particular, just the wide availability of training data, and it's like almost mm-hmm. free to generate more. Like this interview could be used as training data for sure. Either one, right? Yeah, or for our voices, like so many things, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Whereas, what's intriguing to me about life sciences is that it's fundamentally counterintuitive, whereas images and and text is fundamentally intuitive, and that that's really the story of physics in the twentieth century. Was it was incredible that we went from a mechanistic Newtonian world where causality was really clear and in principle, if you know the starting conditions and the values of all these variables, you could predict everything in the future. That was the 19th century. In the 20th century, you know, reflecting in some ways a lot of what happened to the world as well, we realized that, that chaos, stochasticity were actually fundamental to the universe. Um, the realization that the quantum world was fundamentally not fundamentally probabilistic, but yet true, mm-hmm. was, I, I think, a huge shock to the human consciousness. The fact that something could be correct, that's counterintuitive at a very deep level. Mm-hmm. Um, the famous saying by you know, Einstein, of course, said that God does not play dice with the universe. And you know, that, that turned out to be wrong. Um, <laughs> choose whatever deity you want. That, that deity plays dice of the universe. And that's not just a fun parable, but in our world, when we work with small molecules of 30 heavy atoms or 30 atoms, depending, those are fundamentally quantum materials. The simple ball and spring model that we try to use for a long time to model them is, is just insufficient. And so we not only live in, but we need to embrace that counterintuitive world of the microscopic or even angstrom level universe to uh, succeed in what we do in terms of discovering drugs that end up helping humans in an intuitive way, whether you take a pill and it helps ameliorate the condition that you're taking the pill for. So that's really what we have to do. That It's not as simple, you know, there's this great XKCD comic from a few years ago of just throwing all this data into a big pile and stirring, and that's your machine learning model. That doesn't quite work in our field. Um, I think it requires both the human expertise of understanding the fundamental physics of the problems in close collaboration with machine learning research experts together to build models that make sense. Another way that I was, I think, 
underappreciated in 2018 when I, I co-founded Genesis was the, the importance of the user interface. And one thing we did right from the very beginning was approach the problem very humbly, knowing that we need to take an interdisciplinary approach to this problem, that just computer jockeys were not going to do it alone. We need to bring on the best of biotech as well. And so having a close collaboration between our internal chemists and our software engineers and ML researchers together uh, led us creating our internal platform, which we call Nucleus, um, which enables our chemists to have direct access to our latest and greatest ML models for predicting a variety of properties. And that's been really key for their productivity of supercharging their work, but also getting human feedback to the molecules and the predictions that our models are producing. How do you think this is going to play out in terms of the business of AI and drug design? I, I think some of the most exciting advances scientifically have come from you can imagine like a particle accelerator smashing two different ideas together and coming up with something really different from it. And I think that's been true scientifically here, mm -hmm. right? This intersection of physics with machine learning and medicinal chemistry, but it's also true at an industry level. Biotech startups of different kinds have different comparative advantages to large pharmaceutical companies, have different comparative advantages to academic institutions. And I think it's just sort of solipsistic for any one entity to think they can be best at such a wide-ranging problem, right? There's target identification. There's understanding the biology of disease. There's discovering initial hits for those targets, optimizing those hits to lead optimization, animal models. There's phase one through phase three and beyond clinical trials. There's commercialization. It's regulatory. It's and really appealing concept to be as vertically integrated as possible. And, and we do certainly harbor the ambition at Genesis of being as vertically integrated as possible from the very inception of a program to the, the point where a molecule becomes a drug and is widely prescribed. But as in the meantime, and, and even then, we enjoy collaborations with academic institutions which have certain really specific knowledge about different diseases and different targets. We have wonderful relationships with large pharmaceutical companies, in particular for us, Eli Lilly and uh, Genentech Roche, two are the largest pharmaceutical companies, which bring to bear all sorts of um, unique talents to the equation in, in our collaborations against very important and very difficult targets for certain severe diseases. And we don't anticipate those relationships changing as we grow. If anything, we anticipate them growing um, and, and building more such relationships over time and deepening the, the ones we already have. So let's talk about the technology development you've done at Genesis. Could you describe a little bit of what, you know, what maybe sets Genesis apart and, and what you've built so far? I'd put it in, in a couple main categories. The first is, I'd call it generative AI for chemistry, building large language models to iterate on chemistry at every stage, so hit ID, hit to lead, and lead optimization, has been kind of tricky because, as many folks know, a lot of typical LLMs are, are pretty prone to certain tough edge cases like hallucinations. And we found it was very difficult but important to deeply integrate synthetic awareness and drug-likeness into the training of our models. So our, our generative AI models for, for chemistry 
are actually producing compounds that are drug-like. Um, and so we've deeply integrated that human intuition into the training of those networks. And the other pillar that that feeds into is the predictive AI component. So given ligands or drug candidate, given protein, which is more like the receptor that it binds to, predict one, how that ligand will sit in the pocket of that protein, um, and then predict the potency, selectivity against anti-targets, and a wide variety of other key atomy properties. So for there, I think when we founded the company, Deep Neural Networks and physics-based simulation were really two pillars which were quite distinct from each other, and each sort of fed into the other. The first main technological piece we add, we call dynamic potential net, and that was the ability to learn based on physical simulation. But more recently, those, those two previously distinct pillars have been merging more and more into one, where um, the deep neural networks themselves are, are much more deeply physically inspired and are being trained to be foundation models based on vast amounts of both experimental as well as uh, physical simulation-based data together. And seeing that unity form from what was previously two distinct areas has been deeply rewarding. So building in the past few years this, this what we call GEMS, the single platform unifying molecular generative AI along with physics-based deep neural networks has been um, really exciting and it's enabling us to drug some of the most high value drug targets that cause really severe diseases for which there's no other hope. Uh, so we're really um, excited about, about doing that and with this latest fundraise, of course, I'm bringing that to, to a whole nother level. Well, what about uh, people on the sort of drug design side? Like, how do you see that? Where is that today? And, and where do you see that going? At present, Genesis has approximately a 50-50 split between computation and experiment, at least on the research side of the organization. I don't anticipate that ratio changing much. Of course, we're going to be adding additional functions because right now we're advancing our pipeline and, and our first clinical trials are starting to be on the horizon. So we're going to be building a development side of our organization um, and, and some other key functions around that. But our ratio of, let's say, experimental chemists, biologists, DMPK scientists to ML engineers and ML research scientists, we anticipate staying pretty consistent over time. It's because both have such important roles and they work such closely together. So for example, for every one of our drug discovery programs, we have typically a medicinal chemist co-lead that effort with one of their ML research scientists or ML engineers. And they develop really close bonds. They work closely in concert in person together. And the problems of drug design really goes back to what UVJ said to me when I was a PhD student, which is there's no rules in biology. Um, everything's very specific. So each protein is its own beast. And each protein, therefore, inspires certain improvements to our, our fundamental models, or at least in some cases, the way we're fine-tuning foundation models for certain downstream tasks. So I don't, I don't anticipate that framework unchanging much since it's been so productive for us. What would it be like for an ML engineer at, at Genesis? At Genesis, we've really focused on hiring what I would call T-shaped folks, meaning folks who are really strong in a certain one or two areas, but have the intellectual curiosity and the collaborative spirit to learn other areas, a certain sort of learning agility. So we've focused almost entirely on when we hire software engineers, ML engineers, ML researchers to be 
really outstanding in those areas with no assumption whatsoever for any prior biology or chemistry experience, but just having an interest in those areas, let's say. And same on the chemistry and biology side, that we focus on people who are great at those areas, but for them, AI sounds pretty cool. And what we found is when we put the best ML engineers together with great software engineers that help expand and scale their research and with chemists, and they're all intellectually curious, they want to learn from each other. And we found that that's the most effective way to build teams. I think we're now at that, that point of the organization, actually, that it's really important to have also uh, more glue-type candidates who have some prior background in chemistry and engineering um, or similar pairs of complementary disciplines that can really help form glues and teams. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. we're now at that scale. We're about 58 people today. But we still have our primary focus on hiring just outstanding best of AI researchers, software engineers, medicinal chemists, um, and bring those together in a room. And, and that's how we plan to continue um, recruiting uh, as we scale the team significantly after after this latest round. Yeah, Evan, uh, thank you so much for being on Bio2 World. Thank you so much, Vijay. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.